0: We are in a collection of teachings called Beauty Will Save the World. And I uh, still haven't decided if we're going to go past our anniversary, um, continue in this topic, but it's been so good. Last Sunday, honestly, was my favorite Sunday of the year. Uh, first of all, because I didn't have to preach. Uh, but second of all, um, we had my friend Sammy come, and he just talked he geeked out about flowers for 45 minutes. And the whole time, I was just on the verge of tears, just seeing how God designed flowers um, to tell a story. And that's actually what we're going to talk about today, that beauty and story are so intertwined. You can't have one without the other. In fact, the essence of beauty is often told in the form of story. Have you ever heard a story that absolutely changed your life? Um, I was such a weirdo in fifth grade. I was popular, but I was really weird. I was the class president in my fifth grade class at my very conservative Christian school. And at the time, you know, I was in charge of planning a party for my entire fifth grade class. And um, as the party planner, really, I had two responsibilities um, decide what kind of music we're going to play and decide what kind of food we're going to eat. So I obviously ordered pizzas because fifth graders love pizza. And then for our soundtrack for our party, you know, at the time, this kind of tells you a little bit about the kind of kid I was. At the time, Casey and JoJo was really hot. Um, You know what I mean, all my life. You know, by the way, side tangent, um, you know, last week I sang a tag from that Justin Bieber song during worship. I remember one time I was leading an altar call. And it's the very end when people stop caring and listening and they're starting to leave. And I started uh, just singing... um, I will never find another lover sweeter than you, sweeter than you. It's like, it's actually a worship song if you sing it. And so I'm singing this song thinking no one cares, no one's listening. I see a girl at the altar, and she's weeping. Oh my life, I pray for some. It's hilarious. Um, side tangent, anyway, that was what was popping when I was in fifth grade. Uh, before my class party, the soundtrack that I decided to play for my entire class was the Titanic soundtrack. And so I immediately press play and goes, do 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 do. And it's like the party halted. Everyone looked at me like, what? are you doing? But I just love Titanic so much. And not just because there was that naked scene and I was a fifth grade boy. I was not like my other horny fifth grade friends who went to the movies just to see that scene. The first time I watched it, my mom covered my eyes during that scene. The second, third, fourth, and fifth time in theaters, I covered my own eyes with my own friends. It wasn't about that. It was the love story between Jack and Rose that so compelled me before that moment, before I saw that film. I didn't really believe in love or want to fall in love. You know, I'm just a fifth grade boy. But after watching that film and seeing that story, all of a sudden I started dreaming of one day finding my rose and falling in love and defying all odds to find love and carry each other and be with each other and then die in each other's arms. And stories have that power, don't they? They have the power to inspire us, to cause us to dream, to give us new vision for life. Stories have the power to shape our world. Stories shape our culture, our values, our dreams, our ideals. They teach us about love and friendship and courage and hope. Just look at Lord of the Rings. You know, I know the Kangs love Lord of the Rings, and I've seen so many videos of you crying and weeping when Lord of the Rings is on, but it's because it, stories teach us about love and friendship and courage and all the good things. In fact, whenever we have to answer a big question like, Who am I? Why am I here? What should I do? What happens to me when I die? we tell a story. Human beings are story-shaped creatures. We're born into stories. We're raised in stories. We live and die in stories. And I learned very early on that information doesn't transform people. Stories do. No one remembers the facts that I lay in my sermons, but a lot of people remember my stories. In fact, the most influential people in the world aren't those who know the most, It's those who are exceptional storytellers. You know, the reason why Apple really took off is they learned how to tell a story, and it made you want to buy all their products. Even long after Steve Jobs passed away, we all get the new iPhone Why? because they tell a recurring story that draws us in and inspires us. You know, Christianity didn't explode across the world because it was just a set of good ideas and principles, See, it touched the world because it was a compelling story. And it was a compelling story that invited you in to the story, the story of a God who left his heavenly throne to serve the people that he loved, the story of a Savior who suffered and died for his friends, the story of a Messiah that could not be held in the grave. Stories are powerful. And stories are concerned with beauty. That's why we're including it in this collection You know, if we go off Dallas Willard's definition of beauty, he says this, beauty is goodness made manifest to the senses. That which, when goodness invades our sight and our hearing and what we feel, what we touch, what we smell, when it invades our senses, when goodness is made manifest to us in tangible ways, that's what beauty is. They engage our mind, our emotions, our spirit, even our bodies. This is why sometimes when you hear a really powerful story or watch that really moving scene from a movie, you know, your imaginations are running wild, your emotions are twirling, you're cr- Crying, you're convulsing. Maybe I don't know if you're that extreme, but your spirit is stirred. Your holistic experience of beauty is made manifest. Example: If I were to tell you that God is powerful, very true statement. But even though it's true, it doesn't necessarily move you or inspire you or transform you. But if I were to tell you a story. Showing you that God is powerful and engages not just your intellect, but your whole being, your emotions, your imagination, your will. Um, Many years ago, I was in Indonesia, and, you know, every year that I went on missions, God did something particularly new each trip. And that particular trip that we are on, there's this one story of a girl that came to us, and our translator told us that this woman had been blind, 90% blind for about... The last 15 years of her life, she's somewhere in her mid-30s or 40s. And we started praying for her, and we started remembering the stories in the Bible. Man, God can heal. I mean, he doesn't always heal, but he can heal. And so we started praying, God, if it's your will, I just wanna, we just want to see you move in this woman's life. And so before we prayed for her, we were testing her eyesight. Like We stood like five feet away. We're like, how many fingers are we holding up? She's like, five. I'm like, okay, close. Um, four. And we're doing all these tests. We pray for her. And as we're praying, something happens, like tears start rolling down her eyes. And she seems shocked, like, like she was seeing something new for the first time. And she said, you know what? I can't see perfectly, but I can see about 50%. So we stood again five feet away from her, and we tested it out. How many fingers are we holding up? Two, one, five. And then we kept praying for her until her eyesight increasingly, increasingly, and God was moving in her life. God was powerful enough to heal this woman's eyes. But the crazy part is this we made a video documenting this. We took it back to the United States to show our church. And as we're watching the video, in the middle of the video where they show the scene of that woman getting prayed for and healed, we hear like a commotion in our church. Um, audience, and we look over, and someone's just like, like crying and saying hallelujah. We're like, dang, what's going on? I, like, I, I know I'm a very good video editor and videographer, but like, surely this can't be moving her to praise the Lord, all those hallelujahs. So we we followed up and we said, what happened? And one of our church members brought one of their friends who had was pretty much very same scenario, ten percent blind in her eyes for the last five years. And she said as she was watching the video, the video started getting clearer and clearer as she was watching the video. It was crazy. Like if I told you God is powerful, hey, that's cool. But if I tell stories like that, it immerses us into the reality of God being powerful powerful. That's the power of stories. Now, ancient Jewish life was built all around storytelling. Every ceremony, every ritual, every festival existed to tell a story of who God was, who they were, and what God did among them. For example, if I invited you over to dinner, like every year for Thanksgiving, and every single meal or dish that I served told the story of my family history, that's the equivalent of what Jewish life was like. The Passover meal, for example, if you've ever done Seder with with us or with any other faith community was an annual tradition where every year they would serve this meal, and every element of the meal, every dish, even the way that they ate, everything that they did, served the purpose of retelling the story of Israel's exodus from Egypt. Like there's a part of the meal, it's 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 kind of strange if you haven't done it before, but you take a piece of the vegetable and you dip it into salt water, and then you put it in your mouth and you taste the salt. And during that time, you're supposed to do that so that you could remember and taste the bitterness of the Israelites' tears as they were in bondage and slavery. There's another part of the meal where, you know, nowadays in modern day, you bring a pillow, and you're supposed to eat reclined, you know. And it's not just so you could relax and have a good time. There's actually a story behind that, that it's supposed to remind you that in the days when Israel was fleeing Egypt— they didn't have time. They had to hurry. And so they were consistently on their feet. They had to eat their entire meal on their feet and on the go in a hurry. But now that we have come out of the Exodus, now because of what God has done, we can relax and recline. Even the matzah, this was crazy. This blew my mind. The matzah, if you look at it, there are kind of burn marks, and it looks like there are stripes going down. And when they broke the matzah, they told that passage about the coming Messiah who by his stripes we were healed. And by his whips and by all the the bruises and the marks, he was healed, we are healed. And when his body was broken, we were made whole. Every element of the meal, all the food, the rituals revolved around telling a story. There's another thing in the Jewish culture called the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was like a seven-day celebration remembering, also remembering the story of Israel's exodus from Egypt. But check this out. This is really cool. On the last day, I want you to imagine this with me. On the last day of the seven-day feast, the high priest would start at the bottom of the city, and everyone would crowd around the entire city, but they would make a path from the bottom of the city to the very top, where there would be the Temple Mount. And the high priest would come to the bottom, and at the bottom of the city was something called the Pool of Siloam. It was basically a water source for all of Jerusalem. And once a year, after seven days of celebrating and partying, the high priest would go to the pool of Siloam, and he would take a bucket of gold. Like, it would be heavy, y'all, like an actual gold bucket. He would dip it in the water until it was filled all the way to the brim. And he would carry it all the way up throughout the entire city, all the way to the top of the city. And all the while, all the crowds are celebrating, they're singing, and they're cheering, and they're dancing. But finally, he would get to the top, and he would approach the temple mound. And right when he got there, a hush would fall in, uh, across the entire people. Everyone would be dead silent. They'd be watching. Like you could hear a pin drop. That's how quiet it was. And the high priest would take this gold bucket full of water, and he would pour it over the altar, over the mound of the temple. And this was a symbolic act that was telling a story of a day and an age when all people would... Receive the Spirit poured out upon them. You guys know the passage, in the final days, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And every year they did this, they would be telling a story so that the people would anticipate the pouring out of God's Spirit upon all flesh. You see, stories remind us of who God is. This is why the primary way that God chooses to reveal himself to us is through the story of Scripture. God, y'all. God could have made Scripture super boring. I mean, I know some of you already think it's boring, but he could have made it way more boring. Imagine an entire book just of attributes of God, and it would fill an entire book. It'd probably be longer than it is right now, but he's just listing attributes, and he's listing laws and rules. And while there are attributes and laws, the story of Scripture is first and and foremost primarily a story before anything else, and this is how God chooses to teach us who he is. All throughout the Old Testament, when Israel remembered the stories that told them who they were, where they were, where they had been, and who their God was, they prospered. But when they stopped telling their stories, they forgot who they were, and they invited disaster. Look at all the times that Israel fell away from God. Why? Because they forgot, and they stopped telling their stories. Um, if I were to teach a Defense Against the Dark Arts course here at church, which I think every church should do, by the way, the number one strategy I would teach people to overcome the enemy is simply to remember the stories of God coming through in your life. You know, in Revelation 12, 11, it says, they overcame him, talking about the devil, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Listen, when I retell the story, of God moving in my life, whether it's in my head or aloud, I'm reminding myself and the devil, hey, guess what? God has overcome. And we don't do that enough. And so we wonder why we're plagued by demonic thoughts and so many attacks and we fall into these ruts, it's because we don't actively remember the stories of God moving in my life. There have been seasons of pain and doubt and darkness where the only thing I had left to hold on to were the stories of God moving in my past. Because God, I don't see you moving right now, but I remember a time when you did. And if you led me out of the darkness once before, I know that you will do it again again. Geek out with me for a little second. I know it's a lot more fun to geek out about flowers, but um, geek out with me about the Greek lexicon. The, the root of the Greek word for remember, so the Greek word for remember, the root of that word in Greek is the word used for male, Okay. Now, whenever you think of the word male in Greek, it evokes this image of a seed. Because I I learned somewhere in sex ed that males carry the seed for reproduction, right? And so whenever you saw the word male, you would think of the seed, a seed for reproduction. And it's significant that the word remember begins with this root word for seed. Because when we remember what God has done, think of it like we're planting a seed for God to do again what he did before That's the power of our stories. Our stories invite others to experience the same thing that God did for us. That is when we tell stories of what God has done in our lives. We're planting a seed for God to do the exact same thing in all who hear it. I mean, it's kind of like a weird invading thought, but when I tell you testimonies or stories of God's goodness in my life, it's like God's planting a seed in the hearts of all who listen for God to do that same thing. Again, this is why our stories are powerful. There was a time in college when God led me on a journey to reconcile with my dad. I love my dad. My dad is probably the most generous person I know in my entire life, but I didn't have a great relationship with him growing up, and there was a little bit of friction in our relationship, but I remember in college, God led me on this incredible, journey of me reconciling with my father and us just becoming close in a way that we'd never been before and I remember sharing this story at one of my college gatherings and four people came up to, to me afterwards said you know what I've been praying for reconciliation with my parents but until I heard your story I had no hope or faith And a few of those people came back to me weeks later and said, Mickey, thank you so much for telling your story because after I heard your story, I had hope for my family. I had hope for my relationship. And so I got home and I talked to my dad. I talked to my mom and we reconciled our relationship. You see, when we tell a story of what God has done, we plant a seed for God to do the exact same thing. And when we stop telling each other our stories, we rob each other of our breakthroughs. Listen, some of your stories that you've been holding on to The way that you steward that story is to release it so that it could bear fruit in someone else's life. This is the power of our stories. I'm gonna tell you a really quick history about the four minute mile. I hate running, but I run because I need to. Um, A few months ago, I started running again. I stopped after my son was born because it's just incredibly hard. Um, But when I started again, man, all my progress from my years of running, I've done a half marathon, I've done a full marathon in my life. I know you can't believe it because of my body, but trust me, I have. (laughs) But after I started running again, after not running for a long time, like my mile was like ten minutes, ten minutes and thirty seconds, which is not very great. I used to be down at eight, eight and a half. Um, But before 1954, there are some weird people in life that were trying to break the four-minute mile. Can you imagine that? Four minutes, like that's demonic. I don't think that's that's godly. But the entire world before 1954 believed it was impossible to break the four-minute mile. In fact, throughout history, many tried, but none succeeded, at least none recorded. There were even tales of the Roman Empire, get this, releasing lions to, to motivate people to run faster to break the record. Um, Imagine marathon training with lions coming after you it's it will you'll die Doctors even theorized that if you were somehow able to even if it's even though it's impossible if you were to break the four-minute mile That your body would literally explode and you would die. That's what doctors would theorize So think about this before 1954 think of the centuries of people trying but no one succeeding on May 6th 1954 a man named Roger Bannister beat the four-minute mile, hitting three minutes, 59 seconds, and four-tenths of a second. And he was like, just barely did it. Up until that point, not a single person in recorded human history had beaten it. He was the very first. But that's not even the significant part of the story. Forty-six days later... John Landy also beat the four-minute mile and beat Roger Bannister's record even faster at three minutes and 58 seconds. Check this out. A year later, three more runners beat the four-minute mile, and over the last century, over 1,000 demonic runners have beat the four-minute mile. Now, I don't, I don't think you understand the scope of this. Think about this. All of recorded human history before 1954, not a single record of anyone breaking the four-minute mile 1954, one man does it. The story begins to spread. All of a sudden, what was impossible is now possible. And now we have thousands of runners. After, it's only been half a century. But in that half century, thousands because of one person's breakthrough. Before 1954, zero recorded cases of people beating the four-minute mile. After 1954, thousands in just the last half. <laughs> Sorry. Thousands in just the last half century. These stories have the power to release exponential breakthrough. What people thought was previously impossible is now possible. There's a new infusion of faith to believe that what God did in your life, he can do in mine, and it multiplies. Your story matters. Your story is important for community, for our church, for your circle of influence. But I think a lot of us have a hard time really loving our stories. Have you ever been in community group with Dan Fang? I'm just kidding. With anyone that just has these crazy stories of God moving in your life? Um, There was one time I was in community group with this guy named Nate Bartlett. And this guy was like an OG gangster rapper. Like he grew up in the streets of Oakland and he has tats all over his body. He's about like three times my build and size. Like he, you could tell he's been through a lot. And every time, you know, we'd sit together and say, hey, what, what's, like, what's something you really struggled with in life? And I'd be like, you know, um, me and my dad, uh, you know, it wasn't abusive or anything, but we just didn't get along. What about you, Nate? Yeah, um, when I was 16, my best friend was shot in a drive-by shooting, and we had to wrap up his body in the carpet and drag it all the way. to. I'm like, what the hell? Like, how do I share after that? how do I share that in high school, you know, I, I was insecure about my body because I had pimples, and you, your best friend's getting shot, and, you know, we're telling our stories, and it's increasingly obvious, his stories are way crazier, and way more like obvious that God has moved. There was even a time, you know, he was telling the story of all of his tattoos, he has like a big lion tattoo on his calf, he has like literally hundreds of tattoos all over across, across his body, and then he, he does this disservice, and this is when I only had one tattoo, this tiny little finger. Tattoo. Tattoo, and he's like, hey, yeah, but those are my tattoos. Hey, Mickey, I see you have a tattoo right there. Like, what does yours say? And I'm like, oh, this. <laughs> it's like, what is it? What does it say, bro? Like, tell us a story. I'm like, oh, it's it's uh, it's Hebrew for dove's eyes. He's <laughs> like, oh, cool, man. He's trying to encourage me. But sometimes we dishonor our stories, don't we? Like, we hear radical stories of like Saul to Paul transformations of God coming in a blinding light or coming in a loud, booming voice. And I think there's a call for some of us to reconnect with our stories and reclaim the beauty in them. You know, my love story with Krista, um, it might not make a great movie like Titanic, but it's my favorite love story. Like literally, you could tell me a crazy story about you finding your wife or your husband or your spouse And I will still think by a thousand points, my love story is still my favorite bar none. Why? Because it's my story. And even if there's crazier, more compelling, inspiring stories out there, it doesn't matter because I've claimed the beauty in my story. And some of us, what we need to do today is simply reclaim the beauty in the stories that God has given us. You know, I grew up in a Christian school. My entire family was Christian It sounds kind of like a lame testimony to tell. But when I saw it through the new new frame and lens of beauty, it changes everything. Do you know how powerful your stories are? That your job breakthrough might give someone the last bit of faith they need to believe for theirs. That your reconciliation with a family member might give someone who's given up on their family a new sense of hope. Your stories matter. We just finished a six-week workshop where we're all trying to figure out our vocational credos. And, um, the, the professor, Dr. Deborah Lloyd, she sent me all the credos. And I was in tears just reading some of these credos. And what credos are, it's basically like a mission statement for your life. It's what your life is about, what God has uniquely fitted you to do here on earth. And just seeing the stories unfold, seeing the stories there on paper, just inspired me in such a powerful, powerful way. Going to come in for a close, but I want to read Psalm 145, 1 through 7. We read it at the beginning of service, but I just want to read from the message version. I think it's so powerful. And start from verse 2. God is magnificent, He can never be praised enough. There are no boundaries to His greatness. Generation after generation stands in awe of your work. Each one tells stories of your mighty acts. Your beauty and splendor have everyone talking. I compose songs on your wonders. Your marvelous doings are headline news. I could write a book full of the details of your greatness. What's the psalmist saying? The responsibility of each generation is to pass on the stories of God's works to the next generation, which begs the question what will the next generation know about God? through the stories that we're writing right now. Yo, you, you should have been hit with a dagger just now, like of Holy Spirit, because when I even tell myself this, it's convicting. What will the next generation, our children, the next generation of the church know about God through the stories that we're living and writing right now? Will the next generation know of a God of justice who fights for the marginalized and oppressed? Will the next generation know of a God who loves and welcomes in the outsider and overlooked? Will the next generation know of a God big enough to overcome the hopelessness and despair of our world? Psalm 102.18, let this be written for a future generation that a people not yet created may praise the Lord. Hear me, church, the stories we write right now will form the generations to come. Listen, you thought your life was just about you? No, the generations are on the line. What kind of God will they know from the stories we're writing right now? I was sitting with Deborah Lloyd. She was here a few weeks ago. And uh, she's a very eccentric woman. And I, I, when I was in Portland, you know, I was kind of too busy. I was like, I don't know if I have time to hang out with you, Deborah. But then I found out um, that the Airbnb we were staying at, she was literally uh, a block and a half away. And so I'm like, okay, we got to hang out. And so I grabbed coffee with her, and she's just telling me stories about the church that she planted. It was called The Bridge. And she's, she was telling me the crazy stuff that they did. One time they had a service where they completely blacked out the room. And people came in, and they could not see a thing. And the entire service was about engaging all of your other senses besides your sense of sight. And she'd be telling me these stories. Even the worship leader would write a new song every month. And there was one song that he wrote, uh, pardon my French, but I think the lyrics went something like, I don't have much to give except a shit. Like, she was telling me the story about all these incredible things that were happening within her community. And I was just so inspired. It sounded like just like our church, a group of rebels and runaways that are looking for a place to belong. And I don't think she realized at the time as she was planting her church, she thought it was just what God was doing in her life. She had no idea that it would inspire the generations after. She had no idea that we'd be sitting together decades after the church shut down, where I would be inspired by the stories she was telling. The other day I had a thought. You know, having a son or a daughter or a kid really messes you up. Having a dog does too, by the way. It's a lot of work, so God bless you. Um, but having a kid kind of hits different you know, as I was preparing this message, I had a thought. The life that I'm living right now will be the substance of the stories I tell my son when he grows up. And it made me ask myself, am I living a story worth telling? Will my son know how immensely vast God is beyond the wildest imagination through the story that I'm writing with my life right now? Will he know of a faith that can move mountains of impossibilities? Will he know of a God so loving that barriers are broken and lives are restored? See, knowing that the lives we live right now will be the substance of the stories we pass on to our children, to the next generation of believers, really challenges us to live a story worth telling. So church, my challenge to you today is this. Let's live a story worth telling that tells of a God big enough to move mountains, a God mighty enough to overcome the darkness of our world, that tells of a church courageous enough to love beyond limits. Let's tell a story that is worth telling. And so we're going to practice that today. Um, I'm just going to read this last passage, and then we're going to go into a time of response. I'm really excited for today. It's going to be really good. Did anyone paint today, by the way? No one painted, right? A few weeks ago... um, Our response was, we're just supposed to draw and paint, and that was our act of worship. Today we're going to do something similar, but I want to read from Joshua chapter 4, 4 through 7. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So Joshua ordered each of the tribes of Israel to take up a rock to serve as a reminder of God's provision in leading them across the Jordan River. These rocks served as story prompts. You know, whenever the children of the next generation saw those rocks, and they would ask, why are these rocks here? It would prompt the story, and a new generation would understand the power of God. These rocks were altars of remembrance. I think Maureen preached on this. I preached on it a year ago. And there are many ways that we create altars of remembrance or story prompts in our lives. Um, One is celebration. Did you know that celebration is a spiritual discipline? I bet you didn't know that. The celebration is actually a spiritual discipline that God calls us to engage in. It was literally weaved into ancient Jewish life through festivals and celebrations and feasts. Why? Because celebrations were story prompts. Celebrations help us remember the stories that matter. That's why I'm so excited for next week for our three-year anniversary. It's more than just about the Senor Sisig. Maybe it's all about the Boba guys for some of you. But for me, it's a story prompt. It's an opportunity to remember the story of what God has done in our community of how God chose a ragtag group of rebels and runaways to form a church when we used to meet in a small tiny building in the upper room of a picture framing studio to now being in this space and worshiping together and learning how to be a covenant community. Their story prompts, celebrations remind us of the stories that matter. Second is writing down your stories. You know, About 10 years ago, it was generally assumed that you journaled if you were a Christian. Not so much anymore. I don't think any of us journal. But 10 years ago, it was like you could just assume everyone in that room probably journaled, knew how to do quiet time. Not so much anymore. I think one of the lost arts that we've lost in our faith is simply writing down what God has done. You know, I use my social media as altars of remembrance. I, I highlight really important moments in my life. And it's just so cool to go through my feed and remember the amazing things that God has done in my life. I think one of the things that we can do is to start writing down our stories. And that's what we're going to do today. Under you is a cardboard and a pen and a paper. Um, Vanessa, if you're in here, there's some here in the front. I think the the back rows don't have it. Do you think you could? Ying, can you help too? Uh, What we're going to do today is very simple. We're going to exchange stories. And I think more powerful than hearing a sermon, I think one thing that could be really impactful for our lives is just to hear each other's stories. And so in a minute, this is what we're going to do. I want you to spend about 10 minutes and just simply write any story, whether you feel like it's big or small, of how God has moved in your life. Anything that he's done. It could be, oh, my God, God, uh, I prayed for my job, and God really came through. Or I prayed for healing in this area and really came through. It could be something very simple. And we're going to keep all of these anonymous. And so unless you're a handwriting expert, you know, you're not going to know who wrote what. Um, but one thing that I do want you to do in the beginning, if you feel comfortable sharing this story anonymously on social media, um, just put a star at the top. If you don't, you don't have to put anything. But I think it's powerful to share our stories. And so in a moment, I'm going to invite us before, I'm going to pray for us first, but I'm going to invite you to share a story. And please don't make it long, like, don't make it front and back, like, just tell a short story of what God has done, and then what we're going to do is we're going to throw it into a basket, and then we're just going to draw a random story that we're going to immerse ourselves into. And I want you to think about this. Your story, you know, it might not be important to you, or maybe you think it's whatevs, but it could be the very breakthrough that someone needs today. It could be that seed that God is planting where he's doing something, what he's done in your life for someone else. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then I want us to engage in this activity. We're going to spend 10 minutes doing that. going to pass it around, and then we're going to just spend a few minutes in worship um, reading some of the stories that we're going to draw out. So if you don't feel comfortable with someone else reading this story, uh, don't write that story. It could be a story of how you met God. It could be a story of something that God has done. Once again, could be short, don't make it too long, whatever is coming to your heart. But let me pray for us first, and then we'll go into this activity together. God, I feel like you're challenging us. What if we could create a culture where the stories of our people are told and told often? What if we didn't need to be poked and prodded to tell our stories or chased down by our pastors to give a testimony? What if it was our joy, our privilege, even our responsibility to make sure that our stories are told so that what you did in our lives, you can do in others. God, today as we remember first and foremost, I pray that we would see the ink of our pen like seeds being sown onto the paper and later being deposited into the hearts of those who are reading. And today as we trade our stories, would you move within our community? Would you do something mighty among us? We love you, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.